0: declining trust in institutions of all kinds. And that extends to legacy media brands, but certainly Congress, the Fed, the Supreme Court, like pick your your rock solid institution and, and there's eroding trust in them. But at the same time being offset by increasing trust in individuals. You know, social media for all of its societal ills has really made it possible to be very discerning about who you listen to and why. And I think that's a really valuable replacement tool in journalism.
1: Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities, and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions. Are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote?
2: Welcome back to A Smarter Way on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Brearley, Chief Economist at AbEx Technologies. Our guest today is Liz Hoffman, Business and Finance Editor at Semaphore. We'll be discussing how to provide trustworthy financial news to an interconnected world with increasingly divergent and competing viewpoints. Hello, Liz. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi. And I also want to welcome you back. I, I hear you're just back from Davos. And I want to talk with you today mostly about the challenges and opportunities in financial journalism in today's world but i read a really insightful piece that you had written from the world economic forum in davos and i wanted to ask you about that first because it really struck a chord with me and it kind of gets to the heart of what we're trying to do with this podcast series the article was you know you wrote don't bet on the davos consensus and i'm just going to read what you wrote cuz i really liked it <laughs> you wrote there are plenty of legitimate gripes about davos it's elitist, it's hypocritical, it's opaque, it shares little about where its 400 million plus in revenue goes, all fair. My gripe is that it's wrong consistently about important things. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. You know, the idea of these, you know, so-called elite forums and institutions that seem to keep failing forward in a certain way. And I wanted to understand, why do you think that is? Because what we're trying to address in this series is we seem to have these recurring problems that just keep happening over and over. And is there a smarter way to deal with them? So why do you think, you know, in particular, say, why is Davos wrong consistently and about important things?
0: Davos is funny, right? It has your thoughts aside you know of what the sort of global elite, global elite or whatever your feelings might be some of the smartest most powerful best connected people in the world descend on this tiny town in the alps for like 5 days and the consensus is a weird thing because you have these conversations on monday and they're kind of like wide ranging and everyone's just sort of batting around ideas and then by like Wednesday, you can start to feel this consensus kind of congeal. The cement starts to dry around what do we think? And by Friday, it's, it's basically canon, right? And people take this canon back. It's, it's like, it's a catechism, really. And it's kind of handed down from the mountain as this received wisdom. And, you know, as I wrote, it's just like consistently blows it. So just like a, a short list of things that Davos missed. You know, you go back to 2008, massively missed the risk of, of a coming global recession, 2016, totally missed the risks on Brexit and Donald Trump getting elected, right? The two events that really defined the turbulence of that year, completely missed the slowing global growth in 18 and 19. And then in 2020, you know, I think that will go down as just like the most absurd gathering of humans in history, right? Like, just absolutely nobody was talking about the pandemic, despite the fact that at that point, couple hundred people uh, were sick in China. The U.S. had confirmed its first case the day the conference started and just like not even a mention of it and the sort of same communal behavior that would, you know, very soon just start to feel like it came from another planet. I remember being, you know, in my apartment lockdown six weeks later thinking about just how physically close I was to so many people in Davos. And you know, you're eating off of these communal trays and dipping in fondue fountains. I mean, the whole thing, if there was a whiff that there was a pandemic coming, it was not to be felt in Davos. So, like why? I think that Davos, the group at Davos, I mean, they don't wake up in the morning trying to be wrong about stuff. I think they are biased in two meaningful ways. They're biased towards optimism and they are biased towards globalism. And I, you know. Davos was less well covered in the 90s. But I suspect if you went back and listened to the consensus that came out of those meetings, they would have been more on the money, right? That was the decade that brought us NAFTA and the Eurozone, right? There was this real kind of globalization, this cohesion, sort of steady march towards what everyone assumed would be this liberal, borderless global economy. So that's just been a much harder sell the last five years. You're starting to see real regional factionalism, nationalism, balkanization. Borders are going back up. Supply chains are getting uh, geopolitically complicated. So I think what Davos wants in its heart to be true is just increasingly has not been. So they've they've had a tough betting record. And actually, in 2017, I think Davos, in it like a in a weird spasm of self awareness, invited some psychology experts to talk mm-hmm. about why people get predictions so wrong. And I think the best defense one of them had for why Davos man consistently blows it is that, well, he's actually not always wrong, but he's not better than a dart throwing chimpanzee, which is not mm-hmm. like particularly high praise. So, you know, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's very vulnerable to groupthink um, and the people there want things to be good. And so that's what they say and the kind of what they bake into the, into the cake.
2: Yeah, that's what I found so interesting because, you know, Dart throwing chimpanzees aside, it feels very human, right? Like I think often there's a there's a storyline of like the smoke-filled room and the, you know, the elites plotting against humanity. But it sometimes it strikes me more as like high school cafeteria, right? Like kind of the the consensus forms. You don't want to be the person who's talking against the consensus. You wanna be hanging with the cool kids and so there's not much incentive to say things differently, and of course we all we all have our biases. We all want the things we believe to be true to be true. I love that thing about them having some introspection and looking for for reasons of how they could improve it. I was curious though, you know, when we look at these organizations, you know, you, you you've been to Davos many times. Should we be looking to Davos for the big answers on the world's problems, or should we be looking to other types of institutions, or organizations or approaches?
0: I do not personally look for answers to the world's problems at Davos. I'm sure (laughs) there are people who do. I actually, this year, was really struck by, there were really two Davoses happening Davoy? What's the the plural of Davos? Um, (laughs) There's one that's happening in the big conference center where are these panels on, you know, sustainability and and water scarcity and eating bugs. I mean, like the kind of stuff that that makes a, a large segment of the world just kind of roll their eyes a little bit, but are, you know, objectively kind of lofty, idealistic things. And those, the people that are at that Davos are largely... Public sector, nonprofit, NGOs, they are far blacker and browner than the rest of the conference, much more international. And then there's this other Davos that's happening very quietly, you know, in the Belvedere, in the Hilton, you know, in these suites where they're fundamentally just business meetings. And it's just become a convenient way for Western executives to knock off a lot of global business in a couple of days. So I don't know if Davos is comfortable with that kind of dichotomy, uh, but I think that's really what it's turned into. Mm -hmm.
2: And I wanted to turn to a different story, but I think it's related in a certain sense. You know, one of the areas that, you know, some people were looking to for, you know, kind of liberation from the the role of the elites was in the cryptocurrency world. And I think there, you know, you've had the big financial story this year, of course, has been the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. And while much of the traditional financial media you know, had been celebrating the success of Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX kind of right up to its implosion, why was there not, you think, more scrutiny on that story early on? I'm just curious, why, why would you think that happened in your opinion? is it Conflicts of interest, reliance on ad money, need for access, or, or something else?
0: I think it's, first of all, very fair question. And we've thought a lot about it. I don't Certainly not reliance on advertising. I mean, no journalist I don't, no journalist that I respect, like spends five minutes thinking about who their advertisers are. I think there's this the same kind of bias that we were kind of talking about at Davos, which is you sort of want things to be true. And Sam Bankman Freed, who I should note is an investor in my company, right? To so talk about, you know, trying very hard not to pay any attention to conflicts of interest, and we really didn't. I think our reporting on that stands on its its own two feet. But you know, there was there was something sort of undeniably fascinating about him. He was weird. He was sort of earnest and kind of unthreatening and dorky. And I don't know, like things that when you look at them in one light, just frankly made him incredibly compelling. There were, I mean, I can't remember how many cover profiles were written about this guy. None were, they weren't all necessarily like overflowing with praise, but it was like, this guy is weird. Why that didn't translate into, is his business weird? I'm not sure. I think probably some combination of due diligence that was done or as it turns out, not done by like very serious investors, right? Who have access to information that as journalists we don't. I think there's probably a real knowledge gap between the mainstream press and crypto in general. There's certainly a lot of good journalism that has been come out of, you know, I would call crypto trade pubs. And I have a lot of respect for trade publication reporters. I started out as one covering the legal industry, but it's a different, it's a different relationship with your subject and with your sources, right? Like if you work at a crypto startup, a journalism startup, you're into crypto. Like you think it fundamentally has some staying value. You think it's interesting. You probably understand the kind of beeps and boops in a way that I would not say is a a journalistic capture, but certainly gives you a different lens on what that industry is and how you want to cover it. And then you have kind of the mainstream press that perhaps has some of the instincts to look closer, but frankly, probably just doesn't know what to look for. So I don't know. I, you know, I was not a crypto reporter, still not, when this when this all happened and i've actually sort of approached it as just more of a straight down the middle finance story which is where i'm comfortable and actually what i really think it is
2: right and probably would have been easier for people to see the problems if they looked at it as a straight up finance story instead of technology bells and whistles that kind of obfuscate what seemed pretty straightforward
0: totally and that's why i find this story so fascinating which is you know for 10 years these crypto evangelists said you're being, you know, you're a schmuck, you are being used by the system. It's tilted against you. And some of those things are true, right? But we're going to build this totally separate, trustless system where algorithms do all the work and there's no central counterparties and what is even money. And it turns out like, nope, there, like, there is no escape velocity from the basic laws of finance. Like gravity still applies. You still have to have the money when people ask for it. You still have to have Central trusted counterparties, right? There, there are some. There's some friction built into the existing system that is bad, but a lot of it is there for a reason. And and I think just watching this thing crash to earth in ways that anyone who's studied past financial crises or collapses for five minutes could tell you is incredibly obvious.
2: Right, right. And there's yeah, it's just running straight up, straight up financial malfeasance that we've seen dozens of times before, just in a, in a new set of clothes, I suppose. And I wanted to ask you, you know, it's it's fascinating, you know, between the two of them because in both it seems like as you said, there's this role of the forming of the consensus. And once the consensus kind of gels, it it kind of hardens and then it becomes very different to question. You know, you, you brought that up in the context of you know the what comes out of Davos also seems to have come out of you know, what do we make of this weird young guy who seems so successful in crypto? You know, he's weird, but he's the financial wonderkind who's going to transform the financial system. Do you think like that role of the consensus formation and then it being very hard once it's formed to go against it? Is that something you run up against?
0: I mean, this was a little before my time, but Bernie Madoff carried on his fraud for years, <laughs> decades, yeah. right? Uh, I think when you look back, and again, I'm not trying to pat the media uh, on the back here. The FTX story is really an 18 month sort of self contained story, and I suspect you will end up doing some jail time. So, you know, in the end, I, I think you know, it handled wrapped up rather rather quickly. But yeah, I do think there's something to that, right? Like, as you're coming to a new story, you say, well, all right, what have other people written? What's out there? What's thoughtful? You talk to smart people, and there were a lot of smart people who were snowed here, right? So, I don't know exactly where the the Cassandra and the coal mine would have come from. And and ultimately, it came from a, a competitor, right? who sort of tugged the the first thread that unraveled that entire sweater. So, I don't know, I think these things are are like worth postmorteming as a as a journalist for sure,
2: right. And so I'd like to, you know, maybe now turn a little bit more personally to you. I mean, you worked in Financial reporter for The Wall Street Journal and left to join Semaphore. And so the Wall Street Journal has arguably been the pinnacle of traditional financial journalism in America. So I was curious, what led you to, to leave to join Semaphore?
0: Bags of money? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 no, look, I was at the Wall Street Journal for nine years and I loved it. I mean, I loved every day there it was a privilege you know, I do think there's some, some seismic things happening in media. I'm not smart enough to know what they are, though the two co-founders of Semaphore, you know, are really steeped in that business. And every interesting, successful thing that's happened in media over the last 20 years has had one or both of them attached to it. And so I don't know the things that I think we're tapping into that, that I hope will will strike a nerve, you know, declining trust in institutions of all kinds, you know, and that extends to legacy media brands, but certainly Congress, the Fed, the Supreme Court, like pick your your rock solid institution and, and there's eroding trust in them. But at the same time, being offset by increasing trust in individuals, you know, social media for all of its societal ills has really made it possible to be very discerning about who you listen to and why. And I think that's a really valuable replacement tool in journalism. And so, you know, the pitch was come here, we're going to build a business and finance a small little business and finance company around you, a journalistic product around you. And you can um, you know, follow the things that interest you and and not worry about the ones that don't. And that's a privilege, you know, when you work at a newspaper, the front page of the newspaper has to be what happened that day. So we have a different, <laughs> a different mandate. And it's a privilege to to get to kind of rock and roll a little bit. But no, and the other thing I think is that the journal, you know, there was a lot of interest at a high level in innovating and storytelling and they certainly did great things video and podcast but i would find that when you would like sit down to write a new story no matter what you did it always kind of ended up being 800 words and a photo at the top (laughs) there was some just like gravitational vortex that everything kind of ended up there and and i'm not sure that that's the way people want to you know i would find often that i would save my best stuff for twitter i don't love giving content away for free to twitter.com so you know trying to rethink how we do stories a little bit and you'll see in in our story form it's incredibly stripped down. It's like our executive editor calls it exposed architecture, but he, here's the scoop. And this part is, these are the facts. And if we, we treat these facts as seriously as the Wall Street Journal does, they have to be right. Here is genuinely what I think about it rather than pretending that reporters are fact collecting robots who like don't have opinions, which is I think how a lot of other newsrooms have kind of self-immolated a bit in the last couple of years. Just like attack it head on. Here's generally what I think about it. Here's where I might be wrong. Here's my personal blind spot. Here's someone smart who disagrees with me or overweights something I've said or underweights something I've said. And then the last thing is we really do try to bring a global perspective in because when I talk to investors and CEOs, they run their businesses, they run their portfolios globally. And so they don't want to have to read 15 things every day. So to to try to really be global.
2: Yeah, I really enjoy that format and find it very useful, like just the facts up front, but then give me your take. Don't pretend that you don't have one because- you know a lot more about these things than i do you know and you've talked to the people directly and you know, you're a and human yes, being you put it, in and there, right? don't, it don't kind
0: of slide it in right there was a cuz you know you can say and i i never knowingly or, or deliberately put any bias into any story i ever wrote at the journal but there's institutional bias, there's bias in who you choose to quote and how you choose to stack the blocks. And there was always this to be sure paragraph, what everyone calls it. And you have to put it like high enough that it was before the jump. But like, it it was like, yeah, maybe not. But actually, we want to like pull that out and give it its own real estate, put a really smart voice in there. Um, And then when we do get it wrong, which we do sometimes just like completely own it and kind of re-report the story a little bit. It's been really fun to do.
2: That's great, and I want to come back to you know. You brought up the issue of trust, and you know, trust in institutions being low, including institutions like the media, but then also kind of a fairly high amount of trust in individuals, probably sometimes earned, sometimes not earned. Especially as you get into social media, and it's not quite sure that the individual you might be relating to or not. And I wanted to ask you, you know, when you take it down to financial media, your area. What do you see as some of the biggest challenges to creating that trust?
0: I think reporters are often criticized for you know, wanting an outcome to be true. And I don't think that really ever is. To the extent it ever is, financial reporters are human beings and thus rooting for the economy to do well, right? Yeah. You know, certainly crises are fun to report on, but you they're not, it's not worth it. You're not wishing that on the economy. So I think there is sort of an an opportunistic bias based in sometimes both on sort of like companies and trajectories, products in particular, like a lot of journalism. I certainly got a lot better, but in the early days, a lot of tech journalism is basically product reviews. You know, and I think once the media very rightly woke up and said, whoa, these are these are hugely powerful companies who are shaping our, our lives and our politics. I actually think the pendulum probably swung a little too hard to the other direction, right? Um, and so you're always kind of trying to find that balance. But I think, and, I, and I've sort of noticed it more as I joined Semaphore, just the ability to talk to people about complicated people like you'd be telling your friends, because there's so much jargon. We really, we try to be incredibly allergic to jargon and to really be selective in our stories, right? I covered MA for a long time and it's an incredibly fun beat and like a very it's a very specific kind of reporting muscle that you when you learn how to do it. That said, I think sometimes there's a tendency to cover M&A as if it's an unalloyed good, right? More deals is good. Like I don't know why. They're exciting and stocks move and and they're scoops and it's fun, but it's like one company you've never heard of, buying this other company you've never heard of. And we can't really tell you why, because we don't cover these companies, we cover deals. So I think trying to just be to always think of the reader. And not write for your competitors or write for your sources, I think is just a good mantra to to sort of say in the mirror every morning.
2: That's great. Yeah, I wanted to ask you one thing about financial media. And it might be more true in broadcast relative to print, but I think there's often a sense that financial pundits maybe have to act a lot more certain about things that are inherently uncertain. You know, I, I spend a lot of time talking with traders and investors, and you know, most traders you know, the most successful among them will, you know, in their honest moments tell you that they're right a little tiny bit more than they're wrong, <laughs> like maybe 52, 53% of the time. So I think sometimes there's this, you know, idea of if people are speaking too confidently about issues that everyone in the know knows you can't be that confident about, it can be eroding of trust. And maybe that's part of the, the move you're doing at Semaphore of separating facts where you want to be 100% confident first opinion where you're given your best your best thoughts. Do you find like a a need to like have that authoritativeness in coverage that can be difficult?
0: I find sometimes when I'll be pursuing a story and look, some stories, some scoops are just too good. They have to just live on their own. But if, if I'm reporting a story and I really, I don't have a point of view on it, or I'm not really sure what the thing is, then it may just not be a story for us. And I think that's there's some discipline baked into how we're approaching the news. But to your point about, about, you know, having to sort of be authoritative, you know, if you get too much into on this hand, on the other hand, I'm not really sure what you're giving readers, but I think the best example of that, and it serves a huge purpose, it has to be done. But you know, every day a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, at Reuters, at Bloomberg, has to write a story about what the stock market did that day, right? And there's always some tendency to kind of Try to figure out why. And sometimes it's obvious, right? Like Greece defaulted on its debt. Sure, European stocks are down. Mm-hmm. But often there just isn't. And it's just not that satisfying. And you just sort of try to shoehorn something in any way and and hope that no one will squint too closely at it. You know, I think that is hard. And it's particularly hard in in financial reporting because you know you've spent your entire career as a student of the markets. Like sometimes they make no sense. <laughs>
2: Yeah, we used to laugh because, you know, I used to have to write analysis reports, you know, when I worked in research at Goldman. And some days a big move would happen and you'd call down to the desk to ask the traders, you know, hey, what's going on? Usually they would laugh at you and say, more buyers than sellers or yeah, <laughs> more sellers than know, buyers. It. Like, thanks, it's very insightful. Markets go up you know,
0: and down, great. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> but it's kind of teach you, like somebody's like, yeah, like if you don't know, you pretending you know certainly doesn't help build that trust. Um, no. And so I also wanted to ask you cuz in addition to the reporting you do you've also recently published a book Crash Landing on how the world's biggest companies navigated the COVID-19 pandemic and certainly that's an episode that I think we'll be digging through the implications for trust in institutions and media for a long time and I was curious you know not only what did you learn but what do you think the rest of us need to take away about the state of trust in business, government and media and the importance of it from the the COVID-19 experience.
0: Yeah, I mean one correction, I, it has not published yet, it publishes on March 7th. Oh, so your readers sorry. can still do pre-order it, but they won't get it for 6 weeks or so, but it is it's done. Yeah. I mean, it was just a fascinating project start to finish. I mean, I it really came out of reporting that I'd done for the journal. We did this huge, it's like 9,000 word story, the first weekend of April of 2020. And it was a TikTok. It was like the month of March, day by day, seen through the eyes of you know the biggest CEOs and investors and policymakers in the world. And it was really the month that the economy just completely shut down. And we thought that was an important moment to capture. But it just made so obvious from the jump that there was this incredible, frankly, narrative tension that was unspooling every day. And that there were huge questions that were going to be answered by the time we were done. Now I, like you or everyone probably assumed we would have been done in six months and not still talking about this three years later. But no, my takeaway is, and look, it's, you know, since we're being super transparent about bias and reporting, you have to kind of own it on the way in. I suspect though I don't know that most of the people who ended up talking to me thought they had good stories to tell that would ultimately end well for them, and they did. Mm. Though they started talking to me, in, I think at a time when that wasn't totally clear. But there's probably some self-selection built into the stories that I chose to tell. My takeaway, and we can, there's a couple of layers of this because you know we're living with the consequences now. Is that things turned out pretty well, and a lot of credit goes to policymakers in Washington who did in a matter of a couple of weeks what it took policymakers in 2008 to do over the course of eight or nine months and what policymakers in 1929 never did, right? So we are getting better at this. We are are iterating in a positive way, I think. You know, so certainly the central bank response, I think, A minus, A, very high marks for me, Um, that we can get into some of the downsides there. And then, you know, at at a corporate level, and I'm always sort of wary of being accused of sort of being an apologist for CEOs who are not, as a group, universally loved. I will tell you that almost everyone I talked to was trying to do the right thing almost all of the time and almost always did it, which is to say, who am I responsible for here? What can I do to help them? And how do we move forward? And so, you know, the answer to that first question is certainly employees. It's certainly shareholders. It's not, you know, it's not, we're not naive. And it's, you know, uh, vendors and suppliers and, and broader stakeholders. What do we need to do to help them? We need money, right? So, you know, I was, I was shocked at how quickly and frankly, expertly and really interestingly, people short up their balance sheets incredibly quickly. And then operationally, like, how do we move forward from this? And I think that's probably been the bumpiest one. And you've seen some CEOs, I think, kind of step in it, not reading the room, well, or not really understanding the balance of power that had shifted between them and their employees during that, you know, eighteen months or two years, but I I think that most companies and and I think the economy more broadly is coming out of this stronger than it went into it, which I, I realize is sort of a counterintuitive statement given the kind of bumpiness that we're in right now.
2: Yeah, and I'm curious, you know, do you think coming out of it, we're also coming out of it differently? Like, do you see CEOs wanting to get back to? The way business was done three plus years ago, or is there more of a realization that this is changing things for the, the foreseeable future? I think a lot of people have a hard time remembering exactly how things were three plus years ago. Right now, no,
0: well, there, there are these generational changes in kind of corporate archetypes, right? So that you know, coming out of the twenties was the sort of first group of leaders who were skilled in what they call the management science. Right. You know, really sort of operational and organizational, uh, a scientific bent to it and to kind of balance sheet management that kind of got sort of fat and lazy for a while. And then you got the conglomerates of the 60s and 70s, these big sort of big, lazy organizations sort of churning out like very steady earnings growth on purpose for years and years. Along come the corporate raiders of the 80s. Bust them all all up! You know the Raiders didn't last, but I think that discipline that they brought did. And you saw companies in the '90s. You know they merged, they outsourced. I mean, they really became corporate entities, and and the the CEOs that ran them kind of escaped the business world entirely. Right? Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos and Jamie Dimon are they're celebrities on their own. And so, uh, trying to figure out what comes out of this, I think there is, and it's not just the pandemic itself. You have to remember all of the turbulence that got kicked up around it and that was kind of it was supercharged by it so you're talking about the racial justice protests of of 20 and 21 you're talking about you know increasingly divisive and toxic politics right you're talking about January 6 I mean this this real and it's hard to say is you no know, lab experiment but you know the pandemic obviously has a, a lot of that has its roots in the sort of anxiety and malaise that was brought by the pandemic but so CEOs i think i put in a tough spot which is like how do we respond to this right there's this moment where there's a huge vacuum in public sector leadership. Our employees are looking to us. They're scared. They don't know what to do. The place they come every day is not safe. And I think most CEOs, there's a, there's always a healthy amount of ego. I think a lot of them are sort of quietly in their heads, living you know profiles and courage, and then an opportunity to present itself to, to really truly live that. And I, but I think most people tried to do the right thing and did it pretty well. And then you have to fast forward, right? You've got George Floyd is murdered by police in Minneapolis. That is morally unambiguously bad, right? And I think most CEOs came out and said, that doesn't reflect our values. Great. You've got Russia invading Ukraine, morally unambiguously terrible, right? Everyone who's remotely in Russia says, we're getting out of Russia. This is a black and white issue for us. But I think the longer this sort of discussion goes on, the, the questions get harder for CEOs, right? Should I weigh in on this? Should I weigh in on this? Do I? Am I supposed to have an opinion on that? And you'll remember that Bob Chapek at Disney didn't even get in trouble for taking an unpopular opinion. He got in trouble for saying, I don't think we should have an opinion, right? <laughs> and so I think the sort of blurring of corporate interests and sort of more broadly what I'll call the culture wars, is going to be incredibly fraught coming out of this. And I think the roots of that are like firmly baked in uh, in March of 2020.
2: Right. And do you think, is this a bit of the flip side of the decline of trust in many institutions that we're putting much more trust in CEOs and the corporate world and the CEO celebrities?
0: Yeah, actually, let me pull this up because the Edelman Trust Survey, which is sort of the barometer on this, just came out last week. And... Um, you know there's this annual trust barometer that comes out every year just came out last week and so for the third straight year so basically going right back to the start of the pandemic trust in government has declined and trust in business has increased now you know both are pretty low <laughs> i should say and business i think has been slowly clawing its way out of a massive trust hole that was dug in 2008 and 9 and 10 but I think, I I think there is something to that. I think a little bit probably is sort of the PR kind of softening the edges of a lot of companies that have happened in ways that I don't put a lot of stock in. But I do think there's been a real genuine reset on the relationship between let's call it capital and, and labor. And certainly the balance for the moment has swung in favor of labor. You're starting to see real green shoots in the, you know, actual organized labor movement, but you also see it in companies just losing this tug of war to get people back in into the office. So I think always coming out of crises of any kind, the pendulum swings a little too far and it will settle back. But I think it's actually been a pretty healthy reset of the sort of balance of power between various constituencies in, in the business community.
2: Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about one of those pendulum swings with the balance of power between uh, capital and labor, because often technology... Can sometimes be disruptive and swing things away from labor, and of course, there's been a lot of you know interest recently in some of the new artificial intelligence, like ChatGPT, which writes. Looks like it's able to write what would pass as news stories, and so I'm curious for your perspective as someone who, who's involved in creating that. What do you make of it? And it's like, is it a threat or an opportunity for journalists? Let
0: me start with a, a semaphore plug which is that was that was our scoop. We broke that story a couple of weeks ago that Microsoft was putting 10 billion dollars in. And actually at the end of that story we had ChatGPT write a version of the story just for kicks. And me and my colleague Reed were sitting there watching it cuz you know it renders kind of in real time and like our jaws were just on the floor. I mean it was wildly good. I think every round of automation has come with this same kind of hand-wringing some of it, a lot of it turns out to be true. A lot of it doesn't. I think skills shift in ways that don't align perfectly with the jobs that are available and skills that are needed, but over time they do. But, you know, I've gotten that question a lot in the last couple of weeks. And what I would say is ChatGPT wrote a pretty good story, but like they are not the ones that found out that Microsoft was putting $10 billion into (laughs) ChatGPT, right? There's still a role for human news gathering, which is just a real hand-to-hand combat business.
2: Yeah, so you wonder. I mean, in the worst case, it's kind of like high tech plagiarism if it's just able to take what's already been produced and and recycle it with a human voice.
0: No, but but I actually think the same thing is going to be playing out on college campuses, right? If if it is at the moment, you can still distinguish between an AI essay and and not and a human one, but at some point you won't be able to. So then you have to say, well, well, then what are what are the metrics for education? Like, is this? Are there other ways we can? See whether this stuff is getting through and is sticking. But really, maybe it should just be more of an input experience and less of an output experience. I don't know, but I mean, I think these are, are real questions people are going to have to ask. Though I did, t- I did joke with my old boss at the Wall Street Journal that like I would never write another bank earnings story again. Like ChatGPT <laughs> can G- do that incredibly well, and you should cu- you should follow like, up. Thank God, <laughs> it yeah, I could use a set of human eyes on it. But that is just not a value add. Respectfully, that's not a value add part of
2: journalism. And it does create this opportunity for if you can have uh, an AI write a serviceable first draft that can get you started and then, you know, save people staring at the white sheet of paper, and then you, you know where you can add in. It could be a, a fantastic tool, potentially.
0: The first word is always the hardest. And actually, I joked with my, my publisher the other day that I should just go dig up all of my book notes, which I think are somewhere in some text files on my computer, and just like plug them in. And say spit out, give me give me ninety five thousand words on this. Like I don't know, <laughs> we'll see. But no, you know the skill layer that's like you know that sits on top of a lot of these automated processes have gotten gotten more valuable, right? We have assembly lines that changed how we produce cars, but like the the engineering talent that that improves them and makes them you know run safely and effectively is is more valuable than it ever was. Yeah.
2: And I want to ask you a bit, you know, because not only is the financial media changing, evolving, but also the financial companies and industry that you cover as well is changing a whole lot. You talked about some of that in response to the pandemic, but I want to ask you about one in particular. You covered Goldman Sachs for a long time. Going back to 2017, you know, I think you broke the story about Goldman getting into crypto. You know, recently Goldman... Had moved into retail banking with Marcus, which didn't go well, and now they've announced a major reorganization. And I was curious, like, how do you see the financial landscape that you cover changing now?
0: It's funny, yeah. I started covering Goldman in the middle of 2016. It's been a long time, you know. And I caught Goldman at a particularly interesting time. Right, you have to wind back the clock a little bit, but if you go back to 2008, Lehman failed. Bear Stearns essentially failed. It was bought by J.P. Morgan. Same with Merrill Lynch, it was bought by Bank of America. And you had these two legacy investment banks that like, were hanging on by their absolute nails and were ultimately rescued by the Fed as Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And they came out of it with, they became banks in a way that they hadn't before. They were really trading shops before. And they came out of it you know, with a, a bank l- license and then it took them a couple of years to say, what do we want to do with this? And Goldman decided if we're a bank, we should be a bank and we should be a retail, you know, a basic savings and loan bank. And they decided to try to do it digitally, which, you know, it all seems kind of to be a perfectly good idea. I don't think, not that I'm a strategic expert on this stuff. I never had any strategic qualms with it. Executed pretty badly, you know, massively overspent, overhired. And so as as you know, we broke the story a couple weeks ago, there were going to be some massive layoffs that just came last week, more than 3,000 people, which is a lot for them. I think... The reason that they did it, though, actually says a lot about where the industry is, which is there's all these forces that are kind of pushing everyone to be a universal bank, more or less. You know, you used to have thrifts back in the day, right, which were somehow distinct from, you know, commercial banks that had savings accounts for retail. And then you had the investment banks on Wall Street. Everyone is kind of a universal bank now. They're more or less in four businesses. They're in commercial banking. They're in investment banking. They're in retail banking. And they're in asset management asset and wealth management. Basically, all the big banks have some version of of each of those four. And there's just a lot of regulatory pressure that kind of encourages you to be big and to go in places that you're not. But actually, I think the biggest thing that I've seen in my 10 years or so covering Wall Street is that everyone thinks Wall Street are the banks, but they're not. That's not Wall Street anymore, right? So much of the money and so much of the the sort of power and the people driving the next like generation of, I'm going to roll my eyes a little bit, but financial innovation don't work at the banks they're on the buy side they want you know private equities these private debt shops i suspect if you were still in the business you probably wouldn't be sitting on the commodities desk at goldman you would be on the other side of the aisle doing all kinds of interesting stuff that just the banks can't or don't want to do anymore so you know blackstone has a trillion dollars <laughs>
2: Like that,
0: that's that's basically the size of Golden's balance sheet. So I mean, I think just really that that massive shift of power and influence from from the sell side to the buy side.
2: Well, you're, you're taking me down memory lane because I was at Goldman in 2008. So I remember that very well. And I started my career at the FDIC in Washington. So I used to have to know very well the difference between commercial banks and thrifts and savings and loans and <laughs> all the others. So like we've talked a lot today, and I really appreciate it, about the challenges and the opportunities in financial media. And seems like there's, across all these different cross currents that we've talked about. You know, what's your North Star? Like what's the objective that's guiding you as you try to find the better, smarter way forward for the industry and for yourself? That's a good question. What is it?
0: Like journalism, I think, is sometimes a little bit slightly unfairly, but but mostly accurately referred to as a bit of a dark art, which is like it's not really clear how you do it, except maybe if you're lucky enough to sit next to someone who's really good at it, then you kind of learn how they do it. But, you know, fundamentally good stories, right? And, and we can dig into what that is, but fundamentally, a good story to me should inform, it should ideally surprise and delight occasionally, but it should tell you something that you didn't know about the way the world works. And sometimes that takes the form of a scoop. But as we discussed before, a lot of scoops don't actually tell you anything you didn't know, right, or, or are interested. I think on most days, most readers care whether something is new to them, whether it's presented in a way that makes sense to them. Right, whether they can engage with it and whether they can trust it. And so I think those are the things that I keep top of mind as I sit down to write. Like I'm not writing for my competitors, I'm not writing for my sources, not writing for my subjects, I'm writing for my readers. And if you're doing it right in the way we've tried to approach it, some of those people are your readers. But you there's a real navel-gazing tendency to say, well, you know, what is what is so and so who works at this competing organization gonna say about this? Cause you know, it, you just you you lose sight of the of the customer, actually. And you know, I think we talked at the beginning of, of this about, you know, just the absolute declining trust in media. Like literally no one likes us or trusts us. And I think some of that is fair, some of it isn't. But like most normal companies or industries, when the customer doesn't like the product, they say, Well, why don't you like it? Maybe we should change it. And in journalism, it's been like, you don't know what's good for you, right? Like sit here and eat your vegetables. And I think there's been a real kind of patronizing attitude towards readers. And so it's almost hard to believe that they hate us. So I think we try to talk to our readers like right on their level, try to be human, try to tell them why something matters. And if something doesn't matter, don't spend time on it. People are busy. And then, look at the end, you have to be right about stuff. Like trust is built iteratively. And I was lucky enough when I worked at the Wall Street Journal to have inherited, you know, at that point, inherited one hundred and twenty years of trust. We had our hundred and twenty fifth anniversary when I was there. And that's a real privilege. And it's like a you have to carry it forward. We are starting from a totally blank sheet of paper. And so, I treat every story, every sentence, every interview as a way to just put another jelly bean in the jar of like why you should give a shit about what I have to say about anything.
2: Thanks again to Liz Hoffman, business and finance editor at Semaphore. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue our series, A Smarter Way, with guest Robert Dannenberg, former chief of Central Eurasia Division, CIA. We hope you'll join us.
1: This episode has been brought to you in part by Base Carbon. The trading of carbon credits can help companies and the world meet ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But how do we judge the quality of these projects? And how can we ensure that our investments are creating real value? At Base Carbon, we're focused on financing and facilitating the transition to net zero through trusted and transparent partners. It's time to focus on what's important. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at BaseCarbon.com. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit SmarterMarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABEX Technologies, Shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.